Good morning. If you're able, if you can please stand with me in the reading of God's word. So Cain and Abel, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but in Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out for me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the the ground, it would no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Thank you, JC. Good morning, good morning. We are... uh we started a series last week. We're going to do this up through Advent, or kind of about Thanksgiving time. We're going to be looking at questions, and it can be very valuable and probably the more common exercise where we think about the questions we have for God, and those are worthwhile to explore and lean into and engage. But we're doing something we never actually we've never actually looked at it from this angle before in our River City history. We are going to look at what are the questions that God asks us um, for all these weeks. There's actually so many, we're going to. We're going to do just Old Testament ones because there's a bunch that Jesus asked that are really profound too. But we're going to just look at some of the biggest questions that God asks of people in the Old Testament between now and Advent. And in doing so, um, trust and hope that that will open up new things to us, that it will play a formation role in a different kind of way. And so I don't want to say Genesis questions are more important than the other ones, but I do think just because of where it's at, it's fair to say they're pretty foundational questions. Uh, one of the reasons I've always loved these early Genesis accounts, I just like the word, you know, the word Genesis for this book, same word where we get genes or genetics. Right? And so these early stories feel really important because it feels like if God could sit us down and help us get really clear on all the big questions, what is God like? What are we like? How are we designed? What is the role of sin? And how does that mess up the things that God wants for us? How does that get repaired and redeemed? Um, those kind of foundational questions are just really important to kind of be carrying with us, right? So last week we looked at Genesis 3, the big question when God asks Adam and Eve, where are you? Now we're in this big one. Um, What have you done in Genesis chapter 4? 
And so whereas the Adam and Eve one, perhaps it's a little bit of a bigger stretch to imagine yourself living in a tropical garden with God in a state of shalom and perfection. But chapter four shouldn't be super hard to be able to picture yourself in, right? I mean, I'm sure it's a huge stretch to imagine being in a family situation that has a little bit of dysfunction to it. Right, that's got to be really far outside of our experience. Um, these are the icebreaker questions you can't do, but I wish you can do. You know, when we do these on midweek and Wednesday night, we do questions that are kind of meant to be, you know, something about your background or something about your interests or movies that you like or what you do when you look at your phone. You know, questions that are interesting. I'd like to, like, push a little bit. I'd like to, like, ask an icebreaker question off of this and be like, what's one really big dysfunction in your family background that you could share with us today? <laughs> Like, give us a little window into, like, you all at your best, you know? Uh, what, what, what's one level of crazy? My, my little sister, Trisha, I've got five younger siblings, and my little, Trisha, my little sister, Trisha, she, she came up with this when she was, like, eight years old. She's like, uh, this was her little slogan. She said, the hills put the fun in dysfunction. <laughs> I'm like, we all cope with it in our own way, right? So, um, you know, so we get a story here that turns out very extreme but starts in a very familiar way. Sibling rivalry, sibling jealousy, Stuff we really don't don't get a whole lot of background into what leads Cain to be so angry, so jealous. There's this kind of offering thing. We're going to focus more on the question than the offering thing today. Um, but what we see is that something that's probably fairly common: jealousy, sibling rivalry, um, anger, sadness, envy. It turns into something absolutely horrible. He brings his brother out and kills him. And that's this kind of huge part of the story. And so that leads, there's actually a couple of questions in here. Um, but it, what have you done feels like it's kind of the one that brings it all together. So it, though the act itself is horrendous, uh, what it seems like God wants us again to see, much that I would say similar to chapter three, it seems like what God wants us to see is what has God created us for? How does God wish we would live? Um, what happens when sin breaks that? How does God show up when that happens? How does God wish we would show up when that happens? Uh, there's actually some very similar, there's nothing extreme like a murder in Genesis chapter 3, but there's some very clear similarities between what happens in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve and God, what happens with Cain here. And so the big question we'll look at is, what have you done? Uh, but but let's, let's stop, because I, th- this is my take after lots of study on it. I think what God especially wants us to see is, how God shows up in this story, because if we understand how God shows up with Cain, we can understand how God shows up with us. And if we can understand what God wished for from Cain, we can understand what God wished for from us, though hopefully none of us are ever trying to repair something as serious as what Cain repairs. So let's do, let's do, let's, you could kind of break the interaction with God into three different parts. There's in, in a sense, almost three different interactions between God and Cain. And I think just chronologically making our way through um, is helpful because it shows God interacting with Cain before the thing happens, um, right after the thing happens, and then right after Cain refuses to take responsibility for the thing that happened. Uh, so let's start off um, uh, verse 6. We see that this interaction begins with God seeing that something's going wrong with Cain. Nothing has materialized into sin yet. Nothing has materialized in Cain doing something bad. Um, so God intervenes with Cain before Cain ever does anything. And so verse 6 God comes to Cain and says, Cain, why is it that you're so angry? Why is it that your face is so downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching your door, desires to have you. But you must rule over it. You must master it. And so I'm going to invite you to consider how each one of these can maybe um, 
deepen your understanding of how you see God, maybe even go so far as heal how you see God. I would, I would use heal on this one. You'll hear me say this often, but because it's so deep inside of me, I grew up with an image of God that saw God almost as exclusively punitive. Um, I saw God as a rule keeper who wanted us to keep the commandments, and if we didn't, you know, then it was just a question of how hard the hammer was going to come down. And so uh, the idea... So how I would conceive God and self to fight against this, my conception of God is that God's almost waiting for us to screw up. And then when we screw up, God comes and settles the score. So it's actually very healing for me to see, like, no, this is actually what God is like. God sees sin coming way before sin ever comes. God sees destruction coming way before destruction ever comes. And this is the first kind of depiction of the graciousness of God. Um, God does not want this to happen, what happens. Right? Of course, I mean, just they have it. God does not want Cain's brother to be killed. God does not want Cain to do this horrible thing. And so God comes in this very loving, it's, it, it, this, this conversation is very tender, isn't it? It almost feels like it's being at the therapist's office. I don't know if you have, you've done that. I, I love therapy. It's been a big part of my journey. And like therapists usually lead with questions, right? Like what's, what are you feeling? What are you wrestling with? Where are you stuck? What are you trying to figure out? God kind of leads with questions here, right? God is like, Cain, what's happening with you right now? Gives gives. It's not just finger, it's not finger pointing. It's 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 drawing Cain out. What God saying? Cain, pay attention. To what's happening right now? Something's going on inside of you right now. Yeah. What well, what is it that? Why are you allowing these feelings to form about your brother? I think there's something. I, mean, I, I could just spend a long time on that. Just the nature of God drawing us out in that kind of a way, um, uh, getting us to get in contact with what's happening inside of us and to kind of bring it out into the light. It's, it's one of the reasons I like. I like the language of shadow and lights. One of the th- one of the things my therapist used to say is that um, the, th- the things that we struggle with, they, they may be struggles all the way through, but if you leave them in the shadows, they have control over you. But when you bring it from the shadow out into the light, at least now you've got a shot. Right? And God is, God is inviting Cain to bring this stuff that Cain's not really paying attention to out in the light. And then it goes even further. I, uh, this is one of my favorite... I, I, as you all know, I'm not exactly a great hype guy always. I'm not always great on the self-empowerment stuff. I think there is value in those things. They just don't come really naturally to me. But if I was ever going to preach a self-empowerment passage, well, well, God empowering us to be empowered, it would be this one. Um, because um, I actually think it's really inspiring the way God does this. God says, this thing's dangerous. This thing's going to go bad if you let it go bad. But not only can you beat this thing, you must beat this thing. Right, like I'm with you. I'm calling you to take to, to to confront it. I'm calling you to deal with it. Not only can you beat this thing, you must be you must beat this thing. Right? It desires to have you, but you must rule over. It. You must have mastery over it. Um, right? So even though this interaction goes bad and Cain doesn't listen, I don't. I think it's important we don't miss the invitation <laughs> that God had for Cain. Um, God was inviting Cain to deal with the crap that was inside of him, and to do it with God, in God's presence, in such a way that he's not just aware of it, he beats it. Right? That's actually God's hope in this thing, is that Cain would take what's happening in him seriously enough that it does not go awry. So that's the first one, is the loving intervention before Cain even commits to sin. You see how beautiful that is, right? The image of God in that, the character of God. All right, now we see kind of the, the horrible thing that happens. Um, Cain takes his brother out and um, kills him in verse 8. So now we get this next set of questions kind of culminating with, uh, what have you done? Um, God says to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Cain plays stupid. What, what, I don't know. You know, am I brother, my keeper? And then this is when God says, 
What have you done? What have you done? And if we ask the question, right, there's this horrible thing that happens. It's early in the story. What is God wanting us to learn, not just about Cain and Abel, but about us in this? Uh, I, I, I'm going to share the two things that could continue to jump out for me in this, in this middle one, the what have you done, and you can continue to reflect on what God is trying to say through this. Here, here's the first thing, and this is where I see it very similar to Genesis chapter 3, right? Last week we did the question, where are you? And God creates Adam and Eve to flourish in the Garden of Eden. God gives them free reign of the entire garden, says there's just one thing they can't do, eat off this tree. They, of course, eat off the tree, they rebel. And when God comes to them in the garden and says, where are you? Um, this becomes one of the most important things for us to know about God, that even when we screw up royally, even when we sin terribly, though of course there's consequences, you see this both in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, there's always consequences when we harm ourselves, harm other people. I mean, there's impact. There's no question about that. But one of the things, and this is really, really important, um, when we sin, even in profound ways, one of the things that's not impacted is that God does not turn God's back on us. It's really, really important to remember this because when you do something bad, this is actually when you're most vulnerable to like being completely alienated from God, right? Because um, we tend to either rationalize and validate what we did, or we tend to hide in shame from what we did, or we try to. We, we, but bottom line, we run. We run from God, and so this is the this is the most similar thing between both Genesis three and Genesis four. Right after the sin happens in Genesis three, it's this huge sin of eating off the tree they weren't supposed to eat off of. In Genesis four. Cain freaking killed his brother, right? I mean, it'd be hard to come up with something more egregious than that. And yet, even so, does God turn God's back on Adam and Eve? Does God turn God's back on Cain? No, this, this, this almost immediate intervention after the sin has happened, first where God says, where is your brother? It, which, both of these questions are inviting honesty, right? When God says, where's your brother? Is this, is this an item that God is unclear of, of where his brother is? No, of course not, right? God is inviting Cain to confess to what he had done, to step into the truth of what he had just done. And then God amps it up even more and says, what have you done? And this is a chance for Cain to say, I've done something terrible. And I want to confess and repent, and I want to see if there's anything I can do to start to bring repair. Of course, there's no ultimate repair when you've already killed the person, but you know there's things Cain could have done. So God is still present with Cain even after the sin, which is super important. I think for us to remember that, like God's plan A would be that we would walk with God and deal with our stuff and not commit the sin, and God wants us to rule over it. But there's a plan B when even after we sin, and this is, I guess, the other thing I would just mention, that this is some of why I think repentance is so important. It, it's, it's God saying, where are you? What have you done? What happened here? And it's our chance to come clean, to say, this isn't for your knowledge, God. I realize that, but I'm confessing what I've done. I'm repenting for what I've done. I want to position myself to participate in repair. And that's that seems like kind of the clear thing that God is trying to communicate with this passage, that... He didn't want Cain to do what Cain did, but even after Cain sinned, there was opportunity for Cain to repent, to repair, to join God in that. And then there's the final, this final part. And again, if you can kind of especially lean into this lens of God wanting to see what's true about what God is. Um, so again, there's God intervenes on the front end, trying to get Cain to take seriously what's happening inside of him and master this. When Cain doesn't, Cain commits this murder, and God still calls out to him, invites him into repentance and repair. So 
Cain, Cain is hard-hearted to this whole thing. Cain is not responding to God, even though there was all this opportunity for intimacy. Um, so there's this really interesting, uh, if you've got your Bible open, I don't want to say this definitively because I don't know this, but I do want to, I do want to mention this because um, I think this, this is like almost not fair because I'm going to bring something up that is very nuanced and I'm not even, let's let, let just look. In verse 13, Cain says to God, my punishment is more than I can bear. You see that? Uh, I'm on my way to my last point, but let me just say something. Let, 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 me, let me be honest about one of the theological questions I have in this passage. When Cain says to God, my punishment is more than I can bear, this is an interesting word that Cain uses punishment because God never actually talks of punishment in the passage. Um, but that God does clearly talk of consequences. And so this is one of the things I've wondered, and I don't have a strong enough position that I want to say it as a point, but I wonder, um, is Cain... Does Cain have the same thing I do, <laughs> which is always seeing God as so punitive that he can't get past that? Um, I, it does make me wonder if Cain was so twisted in how he viewed God that he missed what God was trying to do. Because I think when God asks those questions, where is your brother and what have you done? My take on that is that God is inviting Cain into back into relationship, back into connection with God, back into repentance and confession, back into participation with God so Cain says, my punishment is more than I can bear. Um, but now here's, the, here's the, last, the last interaction with God that I want to try to highlight a little bit. Um, Cain says something, and this is just another just kind of interesting theological question. At the end of verse 14, Cain says, I'll be a restless wanderer in the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. All right, so the point, this is not the point of today's passage, but whatever is happening here at this time, there is something more than just Adam and Eve's family. All right, there's something more than just... Cain and Abel, because Cain is aware of some threat out there that um, if he is cast out from this place where they're living, somebody's out there, some group of people are out there that Cain is worried about being attacked. We don't have any more details on that, so we don't know who those people are, but that's just clearly the reality. There's somebody out there that Cain is quite aware of that he has to um, uh, be concerned for. So the last bit of this, and this is now zoning in again. This is the part that is clear. Um, I, I would actually go so far to me. To me, this is one of when you use that when you when you talk about this big word grace, the unmerited favor of God. Um, this is one of the most gracious portraits of God I think in the entire Bible. So God warned Cain, begged Cain not to do it. Cain did it anyway. Cain commits the murder. God begs Cain to take responsibility, to repent, to step into it. Cain. Cain rejects God at every single at every, at every single point. You would think by now God would say, "Well, fine. If you didn't listen to me on the front end, and you didn't listen to me on the back end, then you're going to get what you deserve." Or doesn't that seem like the natural thing to say? Even the fair thing to say? If you didn't listen to me on the front end, you didn't listen to me on the back end. You're going to for sure get what you deserve. But that's not what God says, is it? In uh, verse 15, it says, "God put a mark on Cain so that anyone who found him would not kill him." So what we see of God and God's grace is God, God intervenes on the front end before it happens, hoping that Cain will take the relationship seriously, take the invitation to growth and responsibility seriously. That doesn't happen. Cain commits the crime. God invites Cain to repent, to submit to God, to be part of a restoration process. Cain rejects that as well. Even as Cain rejects all of that, God says, even in your hard-heartedness, even in your insolence, I'm going to continue to protect you, even in the midst of your rebellion. And 
I mean, I, I sure hope that one of the two before this is what takes more than this third one, because that's not the whole application point, is go ahead and keep rejecting God and trust that God will protect you anyway. Um, but it is comforting nonetheless to know, and I think probably, at least I'll just use me language instead of you language, I know there are parts in my story where I failed on both of those front two ends, where I did not take seriously that God was wanting me to live a different way, and I pushed forward, and I did things that I wasn't supposed to do, and God confronts me in that, and I still pushed forward. And somehow or another, God protected me even in those spaces. And uh, that, that to me, <laughs> gets to the grace of God. Because if there's any point where you could see, I mean, almost anywhere in the biblical story, if there's anywhere you could say where, like, somebody should get what they deserve, it is Cain here, right? If there's somebody should have got, he should have been cast out. And whoever it is out there that he's afraid of, he should have been left on his own to have to, to handle that, right? Maybe even get a little bit of a taste of his own medicine or what he had just done. But even still... God puts a mark on him. God says God is protecting him. And I think that is just so important because, again, I believe genetics, genes, Genesis, God is trying to show us what God is like so, so that we are so clear on that. And so in both three and four, three, where are you? Four, what have you done? What we see is first, God has created this world in such a way that God wants us all to flourish. God wants you to flourish. God wants your neighbor to flourish. That's why there's the whole great command, right? God wants us to flourish. That's the design. God wants you to flourish, and God wants us to flourish. And that's ultimately why sin is so dangerous. Sin's not so dangerous because it's breaking the rules and God's mad at you for that. Sin is dangerous because it brings harm. Right? Sin brings harm to ourselves. Right? Adam and Eve weren't for the better for committing sin. Right? They were for the worse. Cain is not for the better for committing sin. He's for the worse. Cain kills his brother. Right? This is consistently how sin is depicted, that it does harm. Right? God's not just some rule keeper that's saying you have to do it just right or else God say no I've created y'all for flourishing and when you all work within that design you flourish your neighbor flourishes your relationship with me flourishes but when we sin we do harm to ourselves we do harm to each other we do harm to God's creation and that's why sin is important so we see that God has created us for flourishing God is trying to protect us from sin because it hurts ourselves hurts each other but even when we inevitably do sin God moves towards us again and I said this phrase last week, but I think it's important because we see it here again. The, there's many impacts to sin, but one of the things that does not come with the impact of sin is that God does not turn God's back on us. Right? Adam and Eve sin, and God comes and says, where are you? Cain sins. God says essentially the same thing. Where are you? Where's your brother? What have you done? What's happening? So that's such an important part for us that on the front end, God intervenes and hopes that we will experience transformation with God and do the right thing and live according to God's design. But even when we fail, God is there saying, all right, that's not what I wanted you to do. You harmed yourself. You harmed others in it. But I'm here, and now I'm saying, let's let's move into this together. I want you to repent, confess, step into me, and um, move back towards a picture of flourishing, where you're flourishing and where you're flourishing, you're blessing your neighbor. And so... I don't know. I, I'm hoping for me that's what is so significant in these first two questions. Where are you and what have you done? First and foremost, we see what God has designed us for, to flourish together. We see the impact of sin. We harm ourselves and harm each other. And then God comes and says, where are you? What have you done? Come, make things right. And um, there's restoration. There's repentance on the other side. So I'm going to invite you to just kind of pray with me as we kind of sit in that. And a team, if you want to come back up. And I would just want to take a couple moments to just open ourselves to this story, um, God's story of creation, 
of God's interactions with Adam and Eve, God's interactions with Cain and Abel. And so just kind of pray with me now, if you will, here. God, I do believe this with all of my being, that though these accounts of you in the garden, you and these accounts of life after the garden are thousands and thousands of years old, that, that, that you are telling us a story of who you are in them, that you are inviting us to see ourselves clearly in them. And so as we reflect together on these questions that you ask of us, I'm going to put them back together here now, these first two questions we've done, these foundational questions. We think of that question you ask where you ask, where are you? So God, now in your presence, in this space of silence, in the space of music, in the space of reflection, we listen for the voice of a God who says, where are you? For I'm here pursuing, calling, drawing you in. God, in a way that I hope does not uh, further enhance shame, further enhance hiding, but just so that we're clear with ourselves. If we don't feel connected to your presence, God, may we remember so clearly that any disconnection is there is not because you're not present. It's not due to the fact that you have turned your back on us. I feel like so many of us are trapped by lies that say you have turned your back on us, that part of our punishment is that you have created distance from us. God, may that, may that, this is why scripture is so beautiful and valuable to me because it just helps us ground ourselves in truth that casts away the lies. And when we're tempted to believe that you've turned your back on us, when we're tempted to believe you're distant from us, may you remember that Adam and Eve committed the gravest sin that could have been committed when they ate of the one tree, and yet even still you were there right afterwards saying, where are you? That when Cain commits one of the gravest sins that's imaginable, killing his own flesh and blood brother, even still you are right there. So God, I just am convinced that of all the things we have to sort through in life, none of it moves quite right without the cornerstone of knowing that were created by you and for you to be in union with you. And we have, we are designed in such a way where we need to know of your presence. We need to know of your pursuit. We need to know of your grace. And these two back-to-back stories, they give us a picture. You give us a picture of your grace in a way that transcends anything we could even hope would be true. of who you are, the way you move towards us, your beloved created human beings, created in your image. God, I pray for both sides of what we see in this story today. I pray for those who have not even acted on the thing that's that's operating the shadows, that they would hear your voice today to say, Daniel, what is it? about this sadness. There's nothing wrong with sadness. But what is it about this sadness that's pointing to something happening in your life? Daniel, what is going on with this anger? What is this pointing to? You come to each one of us and invite us to listen, to engage, to interact with what's happening. What an amazing thing that our God cares about what we're sad about. Our God 
cares what we're angry about. Our God cares about that which we're jealous about. And then you tell us that not only we can, we must master it. I feel for some of us, that's, that's the word from you for us to hear today. And some stuff is brewing in the shadows of our soul that humanly even in our brokenness we would prefer to keep in the shadows we prefer to keep in a hidden place we would prefer to keep out of sight in such a way that we don't have to deal with it God for those that you might even right now be convicting stirring in that way. May we, may we find great comfort in the graciousness of you entering into our story before this stuff turned into something that we can't ever take back. For those who you're speaking to in this way, may we respond in a way that Cain didn't. May we hear the loving intervention of God and say, yes, this jealousy, this envy, this anger, this grudge, this is pointing to something. This is a shadow that needs to come out into the light. And then God, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard stuff to pray about together. It's, it's hard stuff for us to come to. Not a submission of, but some of us are on the other side of this thing. Some of us are sitting in this place or virtually part of this right now. And maybe we can look back on the story and see how God was trying to get us to go a different direction. We can see now clearly that what we did was not right. We can now see clearly that what we did has brought harm to ourselves and harm to others. So God, we thank you for the boldness with which you tell the story. Where this is part of the human experience from right up front. A God who hoped we would live a certain kind of a way. And a God who's there when we go the exact wrong way. So God, I also pray that those who are in that same place where God is asking this question, where you're asking this question, what have you done? That we would hear that as an opportunity to be made clean, to be made whole, to write things that have been wrong, made wrong. May we hear the intimacy in that of a God who steps into our space. May we hear the forgiveness and restoration in that. May we come to trust the graciousness of who you are in that. And God, just to say it, just to say it plainly, for those of us who are carrying deep regret over something we have done, in this moment, can we name it to you? Can we say, God, what have I done? Here's what I've done. Here's what I've done. I know I shouldn't have done that. I know you didn't want me to do that. I wish now I wouldn't have done that. But I did it. This is a sensitive space when you ask us, what have you done? And we answer honestly. But God, I pray in this moment you would come. And like in Isaiah 6 where the angels bring the coal that represents the restoration. I think of the Psalms who say that as far as the east is from the west is how far your grace goes. would be received. That responsibility would be taken seriously and that forgiveness would be received. 
us. What have you done? We can say, God, I did this. Now help me to know how to live in a new way. Help me know how to repair that which I've harmed. And help me to trust that you're a good God. God, for all of us, we just take a moment to remember the graciousness of who you are. A God who is so gracious that even when we don't listen, even when we don't repent, even when we don't make things right, even still, you cover us in your grace. We don't want to go that far. We don't want to abuse that, but we will sure stop for a moment and reflect on how you tell us who, what you're like, on how you tell us about the graciousness of your character. How we think of you shapes everything. How we understand who you are shapes everything, how we show up at work, how we show up with family, how we show up with friends, what we like when we're alone. So may these, may these beautiful, fierce portraits of who you are in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 root us in the nature and character of a God who is loving and gracious, who has created us to live in a certain way and wants us to live that way, but redeems and restores even when we don't. Of all the things we have to fight in this life, let not one of them be also a false view of who you are. Let us be healed and whole in you and live within your shalom design. Hear our words we sing by Matthew and worship. In your name we pray. That's important for our own journey. But how important is this for us as a community as well? Right? Like, a community is the body of Christ in action, right? It's always going to be imperfect, but the body of Christ is to demonstrate to the world the countenance of God, the character of God. And to just say it plainly, if you take that story of Cain, if Cain would have responded well to God and then tried to go back to church, church hold Cain. Even if, even if Cain would have responded the way God wanted to, could the church have responded the way God wanted to? Right? And so there's, network, there's never a, a separation between our own interaction with how God presents God's self, how God restores, how God meets us even in the most broken of places and restores us. We deeply need that in our own journey, but we need to be able to embody it together. Because that's one of the things that most jumps out. It's like about the Genesis account. We don't ever want to be permissive of sin. That's not the point. Um, Sin harms ourselves and each other. But it's also clear to the point, the story doesn't ever happen without sin. Even when Adam and Eve have it in the best possible version, they still sin. And so in community together, we have to join God on both sides, pleading with people to take wholeness seriously, 
and to master that which they need to master. And hopefully that's where the story goes a lot of times. And then also, when it doesn't go that way. And God is instead restoring and renewing. So let's stand for benediction, if we will. I love these words here that we're singing. Spirit of God, fall fresh on us. How true are these words? We need your presence. You can sing that in a way that feels kind of trite and superficial, or you can sing that in a way that says, there ain't nothing my soul needs more than this. There's nothing our community needs more than this. We need your presence. So let this be our benediction. May God smile upon you. May his face shine upon you. May the Spirit of God fall fresh upon us. We, let's say it together. We need your presence. Amen. Love you all.